When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. So we looked at the very first part of this last week, that the Holy Spirit filled these men in this upper room, these people, and they started speaking in tongues. And that created quite a stir. This is the day of Pentecost, so Jews are in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. And what is such a surprising thing to these men, to these people that are there? We hear their own language being spoken. By who? Galileans. Who were not noted for uh, their great learning, you know, and yet they're able to speak evidently perfectly in the languages of these various people who've come from all these different places. And uh, it's interesting to notice what kind of an effect this had on these people. In verse uh, 6, what's the uh, adjective that's used to describe the effect on these guys? Bewildered. Bewildered. What about in verse, uh, let's see, uh, 7? They were amazed. Amazed and astonished. astonished. And what about in verse uh, 12? Continued amazed and perplexity. Perplexity. That's quite a list of uh, descriptions. They are floored. You know, they are, they are perplexed, they're confused, they're, you know, you just can't hardly say enough about what an amazing and, and uh, almost disorienting thing this was. The thing about it is, it's kind of ironic, the thing that causes such confusion for them is intelligible languages that these guys are speaking, but it's just surprising that they can. You know, I mean, you know these people around here... I mean, what would you think if, uh, you know, some of, some of these people in this room suddenly started speaking in other languages and there actually were some people here from Russia and China and Japan and, you know, places like that that, that actually understood. It's like, wow, what's going on? Well, what was this? What was this?
and that they were now uh, authenticated and authorized representatives of the Lord. And uh, it is amazing. It's amazing even now to look at all the places that are mentioned in 9, 10, and 11. Roughly, he moves from east to west as he mentions these various places where the people would come. And, and it's amazing because they could all, they can all hear in their own language. Why could they hear in their own language? Because the apostles spoke in their language. Yeah, exactly. They heard it because that's what was spoken. Some people make this a miracle of hearing, but it wasn't the crowd that received the Holy Spirit. It was the apostles that were speaking in these languages, and that's why they heard that way. And so, look at the reaction. In 12, what do the people ask? What does this mean? And in 13, what do, they, what do some others say? They're drunk. Why would they think they were drunk? It might have been because to those people, what they were saying just sounded like gibberish because they didn't know that language. Yeah, you ever heard people talking languages you never heard of before? What do they sound like? Not exactly drunk, but they sound pretty weird. And uh, you know how you know people are. You know, what's our attitude toward things we don't understand? You know, it's easy when you don't you, when you're you know amazed by something and don't 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 understand it to just kind of down it. Seems to me like kind of what they're doing. Um, and so, comments and questions on these first 13 verses. Well, it looks to me like we take the two responses in 12 and 13 and we deal with them in reverse order. He's going to respond to the question of being drunk and then he's going to explain what this means. So as far as being drunk, somebody want to read 14 and 15? But Peter, standing up at the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. All right. So how does Peter deal with the accusation of being drunk? It's way too early in the morning to be drunk. Yes. What, what time of day do you get drunk? Nine. Hopefully you don't, but... Yeah. The folks that do, usually, they're more heavily inebriated at night than they would be early in the morning. You, what do they usually have early in the morning? A hangover, you know, but they usually aren't drunk yet. So the timing just doesn't really make that very logical. And obviously Peter is speaking coherent words here. They can understand that. These are not drunk men. Though there is obviously sort of a parallel between being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. Uh, God sort of draws that contrast in Ephesians 5. And Jesus even talks about uh, you know, putting new wine and old wineskins in Luke 5. There, there's, some, there's some things about uh, that that may, might you know, strike you as slightly similar. But, but clearly that's not what's happening here. And uh, so he, he deals with that accusation very calmly. Comments and questions through verse 15. I have a note here. Um, it says, Jews engaged in the exercise of the synagogue on feast days abstained from eating and drinking until 10 a.m. or noon. Therefore, this could not be drunkenness. 
So. That may be overly sophisticated in an <laughs> answer. That may be true, but not everybody. I don't think at non-feast days you're normally drunk at nine o'clock in the morning, you know. So either way, I suspect it's just too early for you us know, to really. You know, there were rules for drunkenness. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, when people get drunk, they don't normally get drunk early. <laughs> yeah, do they? I don't know, maybe they do. There's say, no rules. For when, when they do get drunk early, it means that they're really far gone into alcoholism and, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Well, I'm not around drunk people, so are drunk people staggering, talking funny, or are they jolly and dancing? Well, I think, I think here the idea they talk funny. You know, it does affect your speech if you get drunk. You know, your speech is more slurred. And, and I don't know if you've ever heard somebody who's drunk, you know, pretty drunk, but you can tell it just by how they're talking. It doesn't, you know, it's kind of silly, not very... Um, what do you mean I'm drunk? I'm not drunk. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> that would be an example. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, alcohol doesn't help you speak in foreign languages, you know. I mean, when you really analyze this whole thing, that's not an adequate explanation for this. Do I? It might make you think you do. Yeah. Other comments or questions? All right, so the question is, what does this mean? That's what they ask in 12. Here's the beginning of the answer, 16 to 21. But this is what was spoken of the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It's interesting that Peter always relates things to scripture. That's what he did back in chapter 1, do you remember, whenever he was talking about trying to replace Judas as apostle. He goes back to scriptures to show how you would apply them uh, to selecting someone. Now he's applying the Joel 2 prophecy to this event. He said that's what this is. And uh, Joel 2, this, this passage that he cites, ends up sort of forming the text for his sermon. We're going to see that in a minute. Um, but this passage says that God would pour forth of his spirit on all mankind. And uh, he says that again in 18, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. So, Peter is relating what happened to what Joel promised that God would pour forth of his spirit. Now, what do you usually use the word pour for? Water. Water, some kind of liquid. And when if you pour it, what does that usually symbolize? <clears throat> I mean, what, what would the difference mean between pouring it 
and maybe, um, I don't know, trickling it, or, I don't know, what else would we use? It's a steady stream. It's deliberate. Yeah, pouring, pretty abundant. You know, you pour something, you're not thinking about two or three drops. You don't pour two or three drops. You pour something that's, you know, in great abundance. So God is abundantly pouring forth his spirit. And uh, we know that by Joel's prophecy, the, uh, the ones in that upper room were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, the idea is the Holy Spirit was poured out, and the effect on them is they were immersed in it. Um, now, what's the emphasis here, though? Who would the Holy Spirit be poured forth on? All mankind? Yes, like who? Sons, daughters. All right, so no discrimination by gender or by age age or by prior condition of servitude. Yeah, social class. You know, I mean, God was going to pour forth his spirit on, on all flesh. Now, obviously there's some limitations on that. He doesn't mean on the animals. He doesn't mean on people who don't believe and things like that. But he's saying that God was not going to discriminate. In the past, had there been people who received the Holy Spirit? Yeah. You remember how uh, in Numbers chapter 11, uh, you know, Moses, of course, had God's Spirit upon him. And... um, In Numbers 11, there were 70 elders that were with Moses. In verse 25, the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. And two men remained in the camp. Uh, The Spirit was on them. They were prophesying Eldad and Medad. And uh, a young man in verse 27 tells Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua asked Moses, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Stop them. (laughs) And Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. You know, Moses is like, Why, I'd like for everybody to have the Lord's spirit. Don't, Don't be upset because they've got that and because they're prophesying. Um, Well, here's kind of the answer to Moses' wish. You know, the Joel prophecy says that God's spirit would be poured out uh, very broadly in the last days, and they're seeing the beginning of that right here. That's what this is all about. And, uh, you know, so so that ties in this whole event with really a lot of Old Testament prophecies that talk about God pouring out his spirit in the messianic age that was going to be a sign jesus is going to go back to heaven and send the holy spirit and so that's what he does so that's one point he makes in using the joel passage is to say this is what this is this is the the result of the spirit being poured out comments or questions on that and things through verse 18. Have you, have you heard that applied to the all mankind, just Jews and Gentiles? 
Well, I think that would certainly be included in that. Um, you know, how broad the all all is probably depends on the fulfillment. You know, I don't. I mean, all certainly means broad based, but it doesn't mean every single person on anybody's view. So I'm not sure. But but he is making an emphasis on the the allness as he does again in verse 21 where he says it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he'll say in 39, the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So you can really see that this is, what's happening here is not for a restricted few. This is a, this is a blessing that's going to involve many. Other thoughts and comments? Now what about 19 and 20? The wonders and signs, the blood, the fire, the vapor, smoke, sun to darkness, moon to blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. I wonder what that's talking about. Sounds pretty scary to me. It doesn't sound real pleasant, although to be fair... Wonders and signs are normally words used in Acts to refer to, like, good miracles. But this doesn't seem to be the same kind of use here by the nature of the things he's saying. Um, You know, in 736, wonders and signs are mentioned that would include perhaps the plagues in Egypt. So wonders and signs can be used for miracles that are not so positive as well. And I think that's probably the case here. This, this, this language sounds like what? Judgment. Judgment language. Looks to me like at the same time that God's pouring his spirit out and blessing his people, he's also punishing people. You know, there's this, you know, are God's blessings... For all? All? No. You know, and that, this may be kind of your limitation on, you know, all mankind. Because at the same time, we've got the judgments and the punishments. Kind of reminds you of what John the Baptist had said. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You know, was the Lord's coming just positive and just blessings from the Spirit? Well, no, it was also judgment. It was also punishment. So I suspect in the context we're thinking about things like the destruction of Jerusalem. That would seem to me to fit with what he's talking about. It's a great outpouring of blessings from the Spirit and a great judgment from God as well. Is, isn't there similar language used in like, be like Mark 13, I think it is, where uh, Jesus ta- talks about prophesying of somewhat is coming also with the destruction of Jerusalem. Isn't that the same type of language used there? It is, and used throughout the prophets for the destruction of various nations. Hmm. Isaiah 13 with Babylon, Ezekiel 32 with Egypt, etc. You just look, when you see that kind of language, you look for something to be just turned upside down. Yes. It's kind of it's kind of end-of-the-world language that's applied to the end of a certain nation's world. So 
appears in Revelation. Yes, it does. Chapter 6 is the one I'm looking at at the moment. Yes. Let's use there as well. And then he comes to his punchline, perhaps in verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, You know, there's a judgment that's coming, but there's salvation that's present for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And I think verse 21 becomes the focal point of the rest of the sermon. I think that's what we'll see, is that that from here on out, Peter sort of does an exposition of verse 21. Because he's tying the outpouring of the Spirit in the Joel passage to an application for these people, how that calling on the name of the Lord will save them. Alright, comments or questions through verse 21. Did you say that you think it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? 19 and 20, I think so. How does that relate, though? I think it relates in this way. That in this time of the Messiah, you have the great blessings of the outpouring of the Spirit, and at the same time, you have the great punishment of those who don't receive God's blessings. kind of reminds me of the last uh, six chapters of Zechariah where he talks so much about the great blessings in Christ, and then he'll turn around and talk about the punishment of the wicked. Because the blessings don't come to everybody. So when Jesus came and he brought the Spirit, he also brought the judgment. You know, it's not a one-sided thing. Don't get the idea that all Jesus is bringing is the Spirit to bless us. He's also bringing the fire and smoke to, to punish those who deserve that. Does it also then tie in with the last days of verse 17? And, and you know, the punishment of against Jerusalem is significant in that it, it also symbolizes the, the completion or the fulfillment of God's plan and that it was not a physical heritage, but rather a spiritual one. That's a true statement. I'm not sure how that relates to the last days. What do you? I think the last days. I think this is like just the. Almost like saying the messianic age. Mm-hmm. The climax. The, yes. Mm-hmm. So maybe that. Relates. Other comments and questions. So to see this as part of like a destruction of Jerusalem kind of thing, it helps to think of it as talking about this whole time period of the first century. Yes. Sort of. And instead of just thinking it's this particular day. Well, I don't think when he talks about the Spirit being poured out that he's limiting himself to this particular day either. As far as I know, I don't know about any men having visions or dreaming dreams and so forth on this specific day. I really think that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a blessing that at least we share in from there on out. I don't think this was a one-time thing. Started then. Exactly. I mean, 
I think, think about the context of Joel too. There had been the terrible locust plague that was a precursor of the terrible day of the Lord that was coming. There's the exhortation to repentance. Perhaps based upon the idea of their repenting, God reverses the locust plague, but then it's after that there's even better. After that, he pours out his spirit on all. And yet at the same time, there would be judgment. It's not like after that is all positive. There's also punishment in that future time of blessing in the Messiah from Joel's perspective. Other comments or questions? To what extent is the Spirit still being poured out? Or is it? Well, first of all, I think we are blessed by the effects of the Spirit having been poured out in that we receive the message inspired by the Spirit, you know, from the Apostles and Prophets. However, I don't know that we ought to limit it to that, particularly in view of a passage like Titus 3, um, which is an interesting passage. Titus 3... Uh, verse 3 for we also once were foolish ourselves disobedient deceived enslaved to various lusts and pleasures spending our life in malice and envy hateful hating one another but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now perhaps you could explain that by saying, you know, we somehow receive the effects of the Holy Spirit having been poured out, but it seems more logical to me to take this as, as we're saved, He pours the Holy Spirit out upon us as well. So I think there's a sense in which, you know, when we come to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit poured out on us. Not that we are inspired as the apostles were, but that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we're filled with the Spirit in a sense as well. That would be my answer. Other questions or comments? Alright. Go to 21. It shall, come, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now if you're going to preach that sermon... His first point is the Lord that you call on. You know, how are you going to call on the name of the Lord if you don't know the Lord? So he's going to preach a sermon on the Lord you, have, you, you call on, and that's 22 to 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, lo- loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Okay, he starts with what part of Jesus' life in verse 22? His physical life here, his ministry. Yes, his ministry here on the earth. And what does he say about that? miracles and wonders and signs. Yes, God proved Jesus by the signs, wonders, and miracles. The word wonders never found in the New Testament without the word sign accompanying it. So, that's Jesus' life. Then verse 23 deals with what? His death. Who was responsible for his death? God. It's by God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, but who was responsible for his death? Godless men. Yes, you nailed to the cross to a cross by the hand of godless men and put him to death. This, you know, this was both God and man who collaborated, so to speak, in putting him to death. Men out of a bad heart and God because this is part of his plan to save man. And then what happened to him starting in verse 24? Yes, he's raised from the dead. Um, and, you know, isn't that quite a contrast with 23? You know, the godless men put him to death, but God reversed their decision. He raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. And he cites David in Psalm 16. <laughs> David in Psalm 16 describes the righteous man, but the, the, the you know, ideal righteous man is Jesus. And, and, you know, in Psalm 16, there's a sense in which David himself and any righteous man is in the passage. But when you press the language of the passage, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. If you press that language, is that true of David? He died and decayed. So, so in the ultimate sense, who was David talking about? Yes. Because his, he, he, he wasn't abandoned to Hades. His flesh did not suffer decay. It was impossible for death to retain him. And so, you know, as, as per Psalm 16, Jesus raised from the dead. And what's the other proof besides the psalm that we have that Jesus was raised from the dead? 
Absolutely. We have witnesses that he was raised up. They saw the empty tomb. They saw Jesus after his resurrection. Um, Now notice one thing in passing. That is how Peter addresses these men. In 14, how did he address them? The man of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem. In 22, how does he address them? And in verse 29? Brethren. So you're saved before you're baptized because these guys are already brethren. Is that the case? Why does he call them brethren? Is it possible that uh, as Peter will tell them that they killed the Christ, that Peter considers himself with him because he feels he also betrayed Christ by leaving him? Interesting idea, but I think you might be able to come up with a simpler explanation. They're all Jews. Yeah, they're brother Jews. He's identifying himself with them, I think intentionally so. But it's typical in the book of Acts to use the word brethren when a Jew talks about a brother Jew. Doesn't necessarily mean a brother Christian. We'll see a number of other examples of this. Where this comes into play, particularly as in Acts 9, when Ananias comes to Saul before he'd been baptized and says, Brother Saul. But that's just one of many cases in the book of Acts where brother is used for a brother Jew. So he, but he is identifying with them, and he's basically proving, first by Scripture, then by eyewitness testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, so you had in 22 the life of Jesus, 23 the death of Jesus, 24 to 32 the resurrection of Jesus, and 33 to 36, what do you have? The ascension, exaltation. Yes, Jesus' exaltation. He's been exalted, and there's a debate about this. Either it's possible, either he's been exalted by the agency of the right hand of God, or he's been exalted to the place of the right hand of God. Either one of those is possible in language, and both are true. But he's been been exalted. Now, what is the evidence that he's been exalted? He's... He poured forth all of this that you're seeing and hearing. So, what's the evidence? Speaking in foreign Yeah, all that happened, and how do they know this is true? They see and hear it. They are witnesses. Isn't that interesting? The apostles are the witnesses of the resurrection, but the crowd are the witnesses of the effect of the exaltation because they themselves have seen the effect of the Spirit being poured out. So he appeals to them as witnesses of his exaltation. What else could explain this phenomenon? This is a a demonstration. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, um, well, what showed Jacob that Joseph had been exalted in Egypt? Those wagons full of things from Egypt. Exactly. You know, how did Joseph manage to get all this stuff if he hadn't been exalted? That tells you he must be in a pretty high position, be pretty powerful and wealthy. 
You know, because here's the evidence. Well, we can't see Jesus at the right hand of God. But we can see that if it hadn't been for him having that high position, how in the world would he ever managed to send the Holy Spirit and do these things? So they are witnesses of this. This is kind of a messianic executive act. You both see it here. And then what else does he do to prove the case for Jesus' exaltation? Scripture. scripture, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So do you see what he did? This is a chiasm if you want to look at it that, that way. Connection with the resurrection, he proves it by scripture and eyewitness testimony. In connection with the exaltation, he proves it by eyewitnesses and scripture. So you got scripture, eyewitness, eyewitness scripture as to the resurrection and to the exaltation. And that's made a very strong case for who Jesus is that they need to call on. And so he says, therefore let all the house of Jerusalem know for certain that God has made him both what? Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom he crucified. Now saying he made him Christ means he made him what? Savior? Well, sort of. Messiah. Messiah. Christ means Messiah. He made him the Messiah. The, the fulfillment of the promised king and David's lineage and all of that. But why would he say he made him both Lord and Christ? I mean, we know he's Lord in a sense. But, but why mention that here? Do you see? One thought is he's not a it's not a, a has been kind of thing. It's it's real and active. His his lordship is current. That is true, but I think there's a specific reason in this sermon to show that God's made him Lord and Christ. You have to call on the name of the Lord. Exactly. It goes right back to Joel too. Who it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now we're proving that Jesus is the Lord. He's the one you have to call on. Now that's really interesting if you go back and look at Joel chapter 2. Because in Joel 2 verse 32 it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the capital L-O-R-D name of Yahweh name of Jehovah so he's identifying here Jesus as the Lord Jehovah of Joel 2 now I don't mean by that and I don't think the scriptures mean by that that Jesus is exclusively Jehovah in other words Jehovah is not just a title for Jesus but for the Father and the Spirit as well I believe Jehovah is the name of God not the personal name of the Father the Son or the, or the Holy Spirit all three of them are Jehovah but, but he's identifying Jesus as Lord to fit him in with this passage in Joel 2 this is whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jehovah shall be saved and of course, the way that the Jews read Joel 2 was Adonai, was Lord. And, and the, the thing that you'd say in the New Testament to be equivalent to Yahweh, only word you could really use would be Lord. So he's identifying Jesus through this exaltation 
He is the Lord. This is the identification of the Lord that Joel 2.21, 2032, Acts 2.21, says that you must call on to be saved. Comments and questions? By the time Peter gets through, these fellows that have been charging them with being drunk with new wine would have to deny everything that they've just seen and heard. <laughs> That's right. This is an amazing if, I mean, if message. If they're going to continue believing as they believe, they're going to deny all of this. You're right. The evidence is strong, and they see it and hear it. you just got to close your eyes and shut up your ears. And what did he say they had done with the one God made both Lord and Christ? Crucified him. Whoa. That's probably not what you wanted to have done with the Lord and Christ. The one that God made Lord and Christ. So uh, he's convicting them. Kind of a very strong convicting statement at the end of this sermon. They need to see their need for the salvation that you call in the name of the Lord to get. Comments and questions through 36. Alright. Point one of the sermon was, who is the Lord you're to call on? Point two is in the question answer period, how do you call upon the Lord? 37 to 41. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting, kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, lots of good stuff in this. What's the effect on the audience? Pierced to the heart. Which means? Convicted. Convicted of their guilt. You have to be convicted of your guilt in order to repent and seek salvation, just like you have to be thirsty in order to drink. It's necessary that Peter bring these people to conviction. They have to, they have to hurt. There is no painless repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul had regretted sending the painful letter, but then he was glad because it made them sorry. He wasn't so glad for the sorrow, but it, the sorrows wasn't necessarily to lead to repentance. You can't have griefless repentance. You know, sometimes we want to make people feel good, you know, like, well, I, I don't know, don't feel so bad. Well, I understand there is a being overwhelmed with guilt and self-pity that doesn't seek the Lord that's not productive. But, the Lord strongly encouraged throughout the Bible deep grief and sorrow and tears and contrition for sin. You won't make the changes you need to make if it doesn't bother you. 
So when they say, what shall we do, because they were cut to the heart, Peter's not going to say, well, now, now, it's okay. It's not so bad. Don't feel so bad about it. You know, that's not what he's going to say. Um, now, John 16 had said that God would send the Holy Spirit, Jesus had said he'd send the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin. Here's an illustration of that. How did the Holy Spirit convict these people of sin? Through Peter's preaching. And he was in Peter as he preached. I think the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit brings to the world is not by the Holy Spirit working in some direct way on the sinner's heart. It's by this message, this convicting message that Peter preaches. So they're really, they're, they got a dagger in them, and they say, brethren, what shall we do? Well, what's Peter going to tell them? He's going to tell them how to call on the name of the Lord. How do you do that? First of all, you repent, which means? Yeah, a radical change of mind. A decision to change your life. And not only repent, but? Be baptized. Yes. Repent and each of you be baptized. He makes that more personal. He goes from the general call, repent, to an individualized instruction, and let each of you, that makes it more definite and more, more individual, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, those are two things that a person's got to do to be forgiven. They have to repent and they have to be baptized. Now I want you to see a parallel for a second. Look at Matthew 26, 28. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus, in instituting the Lord's Supper, says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Now Jesus' blood was shed for forgiveness of sins. Here he says you're to repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sins. Could forgiveness occur without Jesus shedding his blood? Can forgiveness occur without our repenting and being baptized? It's the very same phrase, forgiveness of sins. And so, you know, this is saying that in order for them to be forgiven, they have to repent and be baptized. Now, look at this again in verse 38. And look back at verse 21. Do you see the parallels? I'm going to, we're going to look at verse 21 phrase by phrase. And see if you can understand what part of verse 38 is Peter's explanation of this. When Peter says, uh, when, when Joel said in verse 21, it shall be that everyone who calls. Now what's Peter saying you have to do in order to call? What's his, what's his explanation for that? Repent and be baptized. Exactly. Yeah, On the name of the Lord. What's Peter's explanation for that? 
in the name of Jesus Christ, that's the Lord that you have to call on, will be saved. What's Peter's explanation for that? Sins forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I think verse 38 is just uh, elaborating and uh, more or less applying Joel's prophecy, giving more specifics to make them see calling means repent and be baptized. The name of the Lord means the name of Jesus Christ. And being saved involves the forgiveness of your, uh, forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Comments and thoughts on that? Logan. Is the gift of the Holy Spirit some kind of spiritual gift, or is, as a lot of people probably say, or is the gift of the Holy Spirit more just the message that the Holy Spirit is given? And I think neither one. I would identify the gift of the Holy Spirit as just the Holy Spirit coming into their lives when they're converted to Christ. I think I prefer that But do you see the, the, the impressive nature of that? You look at verse 36. And you look at verse 38. Do you realize what he's saying? They they have just murdered God's son. And now he's offering them his spirit. That's amazing. That's incredible. When you really, when you look at it that way, that's an incredible opportunity. Incredible mercy on the part of the Lord. And look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now that's fascinating. Keep your finger here and go back to Joel 2. You see, Peter, when he cited Joel 2, stopped in the middle of the verse. You realize there weren't verses back then. But he didn't cite the whole passage. Rarely do New Testament writers, when they cite the Old Testament, cite the, the only part they want you to think about. They cite a snatch of it and you remember the whole thing. Well, look at Agile 2.32. Here's the part that, that was quoted. And it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered. But look at what it continues to say. For on Mount Zion in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now look back at 2.39. It asks, For the promise is for you and your children for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So he is continuing to apply the Joel passage. This is for the ones the Lord calls to himself. And who is the Lord calling? You, your children, and all who are far off. The Lord was calling all. He was offering salvation to all. So I think it's really cool that the Joel 2 passage continues beyond what Peter quotes and that verse 39 picks up on the rest of that passage, even though Peter hadn't quoted it initially. Isn't that cool? So the promise of the Holy Spirit, is it reflected in the Joel passage, or is it an addition to the Joel passage? Verse 32. 
I suspect it's included, but I imagine the deliverance is the bigger thing in the immediate context, the, the salvation or forgiveness. But I wouldn't try to rule out also the Spirit, since he's been talking about that earlier in the context. And he picks up on this. Another thing that might show the deliverance is maybe the main point of this point is in verse 40, he keeps exhorting them to be saved from this perverse generation. There's deliverance and judgment. You be saved from this perverse generation that the judgment is going to come upon. So I think even that goes back to that Joel context. You need to be delivered in this way so that the judgment that he spoke of won't come upon you. I just think, you know, the more I study the New Testament, when it uses Old Testament quotations, the more I'm impressed with how deeply the Old Testament passages are used and how much it draws from the context of the Old Testament passages. And that you really need to understand the Old Testament passage well in its context to really understand the point he's making. And I, I, I would say that, you know, I say this fairly often, but it's just exactly what we do if we know a passage well. You know, if we know a passage well, somebody says, well, do you have to be immersed to be baptized? And we say, well, what about the Ethiopian men? Well, what are we thinking? Just about the passage that said he was an Ethiopian? No, we're actually thinking about in the story where they both went down to the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when I said that, most of you knew what I meant by that. You know, we, do, we, we, will, we will cite something, but we don't mean just the word we cited. We're citing something to draw the whole context to our mind, and we're making a point not just from the part we cited, but from the part in the context. And, and I think that's really well illustrated here, as Peter is just really doing an exposition of Joel's passage. I mean, all the way around, you know, this is, this is a great example of contextual preaching. You know, he really preaches Joel too. Uh, he draws some other passages in, but his main point and thought and theme throughout it is the Joel 2 passage. The more I see, you know, the more you look at this, the more impressive it is. And it has a great effect because 3,000 were baptized, so there's a vigorous growth spurt here. Comments and questions? So the far off, he mentions you, your children, those who are far off. Is that progression, or is that a... Uh, or, or not? You could look at it as it will a, be. a timeline progression, you know, kind of a a perpetuation from generation to generation, or you could view it perhaps as, you know, a, a broadening. Um. Yeah, well, maybe maybe a broadening, but I mean, in actual fact, it was going to be a while before they even understood what they what they'd said, <laughs> and that those who are far off, the Gentiles, were brought in. But this is certainly an indication from the Lord that's what He intends, even though I don't think Peter understands what He's saying. Okay. So you, you're, you're pretty confident that the far off is, is a clear reference to the Gentiles? Yes, I think so. Okay, yes. not far off in time. descendants of the Jews that are going to come later. No, I think, 
You know, I mean, there's just so many times when the far-off idea, in one sense or another, is used for the Gentiles. Think about, like, Ephesians 2, um, where he, um, in uh, 2.17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. That's Ephesians 2.17. And I I think that far-away idea is is a fairly common thought for the Gentiles. Angry. There's there's no way that you could, and in studying this, get the idea that uh, uh, salvation would come to one who decided he didn't want to be baptized or uh, was baptized as an infant or so many of the different ideas that are prevalent in the religious world today. I agree. You'd have to repent, so an infant couldn't do that. And, uh, you know, certainly there's no indication this is optional. (laughs) You know, there's no indication that there's salvation for someone who doesn't call the name of the Lord, and this is the way you do that. If you understand the word baptize, it would also refute the idea of sprinkling, you know, because the word means immerse. So, yeah, there's a lot in this. You know, I mean, it would refute the idea of some other kind of baptism working. This has to be in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So there's a lot in this, just looking at this, that helps explain, you know, the role of baptism. Yes. I think when we think of Acts chapter 2, a lot of times we miss the real point of the chapter. If you say to somebody in the church, what's Acts chapter 2 about? And they say, repent and be baptized. Um, That's really, well, that's an important part, definitely, but that's not what Peter spends the bulk of his time talking about. It's about Jesus. Um, You know, if you were to take out the repent and be baptized, it would have been an incomplete message, just like if you took the fuel pump out of the car, it, it wouldn't run, but the main part of the car is not the fuel pump, it's the engine that really makes it work. So. Well, certainly, because what, you know, what would happen if we repented and were baptized in the name of John Doe? Could John Doe save us? You know, you, and you can put anybody's name you want into for John Doe. The smartest guy, the strongest guy, the most religious guy, or whatever. You know, this is salvation through Christ. I mean, the thing that he really is spends the most time with is the Lord that you have to call on. Once you really understand that he is Lord and Christ, then being willing to do what it takes to call on him for salvation... That's a very logical step. You definitely do that. So the point is, Christ is the Savior, and here's the way he's appointed to call on him in order to be saved. Other comments or questions? When were the other apostles baptized? Well, I don't have an answer for that. Restate the question. When were the other apostles baptized? Oh. We, I don't have, I don't know of a statement in Scripture that answers that. But they were. I think they probably were, but I don't have a statement that says that. 
I do see, though, that that's the universal command. Uh, and so I would assume they were. Uh, but, but, you know, I can't prove that outside of just the universality of that. I can prove later on in Acts that those who were baptized with John's baptism still need to be baptized with Jesus' baptism. We can show that, which may be relevant in the case of the apostles. Other questions and comments? And it prob- that probably could not have happened before this day because presumably, well, I was going to say that the apostles wouldn't know what needed to be done, but this is the first public preaching of it. You've got Mark 16. I think, you know, to go beyond that, I mean, we just really don't know. Uh, there's just nothing that's said about that. So I don't know, you know, when or where or how or whatever. All I have is just the general statement that I would assume applies to them as well. But when they did that or how or whatever, I just really don't know. Well, nobody, uh, none of the 3,000 who were baptized were specifically named. They could have been among the 3,000. That's right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, some things like that, uh, you know, the Lord just didn't see fit to give us that information. Um, It doesn't really change much of anything. You know, there'd probably be some who would argue, well, they weren't baptized for, they'd have come up with one reason or another. I, I think they probably were, but I'm really not going to debate that issue with somebody because what difference is it going to make? <laughs> oh, back to Ryan's comment. Um, so if the greater emphasis in Peter's sermon is on knowing and appreciating who Jesus is rather than the emphasis being on what I do in response to that, not that they're disconnected or or that this, the latter is of no importance, then that would emphasize how I should focus my teaching, and that is helping people come to know Jesus and who he is, and then the latter will follow. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, the response is a response to Jesus. It's not just a response to the commands without understanding who the commands come from. Paul said he didn't come to preach baptism, he came to preach Christ. Um, yes. That would involve baptism, um, as it was here. But he wasn't converting people to baptism. Exactly, absolutely. Amen. Amen. Other thoughts and comments? Good discussion. What we're going to see from here on out in this chapter is kind of a summary uh, passage that talks about what's happening now with these who've been converted. One of the ways that uh, Luke writes Acts is that he includes several summary statements, like one-verse statements, and, and a small handful of summary panels, summary, you know, longer passages that kind of summarize what's going on with the brethren. 
and uh, that's what this is going to be. So uh, we'll start uh, two weeks from now in uh, 2.42 and talk about, uh, you know, what the, what the brethren did, uh, these 3,000 who were baptized uh, on that day. Uh, but I won't be here next week, but Lord willing, I should be here two weeks from now and probably uh, pretty much continuously until the last uh, Thursday of October or something.